Greetings, this is Volts, and I'm your host, David Roberts. There aren't a lot of positive, hopeful stories competing for attention in the U.S. these days, but one ray of light, if you'll pardon the pun, comes in the form of solar power. During the 21st century, it has plunged in price to the point that it is the cheapest available source of power in most big energy markets. Though it provides just 3% of U.S. electricity today, analysts say it could provide close to half by mid-century. Adam Browning has lived through every stage of this extraordinary ongoing story. He co-founded Vote Solar, a nonprofit that advocates for solar energy at the state level, in 2002 to push for solar on public buildings in San Francisco. Since then, he has helped build a team of 40 people that operates across the country and has led numerous campaigns for state policy and regulatory changes. For as long as I've been doing energy journalism, I've known Adam and Vote Solar to be reliable sources, smart, practical, and results-oriented. I read all their emails, which regular listeners will know is high praise. Now, after 20 years, Browning is stepping back, shifting to an advisory role and handing off day-to-day leadership. Given his long experience, I thought it would be interesting to talk to him about what he has learned, how much things have changed for solar, and where solar and climate advocacy need to go next. Adam Browning, welcome to Volts. Thanks. Uh, Really pleased to be here. So you have been at this for 20 years now. So, so let's, let's, let's cast our eyes back if we can 20 years into the past. Tell me kind of the Adam Browning origin story. How did you gravitate to this particular field? It must have been relatively soon after you were out of college, right? So it must have been one of the first things you did and, and stuck with it. So tell us how you got into all this. Uh, you're too kind. Uh, my <laughs> youthful demeanor. Uh, <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll have to tell my stylist here. But so it wasn't quite right out of college. You know, I've never had a, uh, you know, a plan that I put into place. I've always moved from the thing that seemed really interesting to me at the time, and then uh, was open to that next opportunity. So after college, I did Peace Corps in West Africa, mm. which was in many ways just an incredibly formative experience and a, a movable feast that I continue to look back on and think about, and uh, that experience continues to nourish. After that, I, uh, I joined EPA in San Francisco, the Region 9 office, and worked there for about eight years. The, the origin story, not of Adam Browning, but really of Vote Solar, which uh, is probably more to the point here. Was really, you know, born out of you know spending a good chunk of time with uh, the federal government uh, doing environmental protection, and it was really, you know, I was doing a lot of enforcement and uh, inspecting smokestacks and you know fines for exceeding limits in in some ways. And this would have been during Clinton years, yes, yes, and then a, a little bit of the the Bush years. Um, mm. So that experience was, you know, a wonderful introduction to how. Uh, environmental protection works and doesn't work in this country. But when I was, you know, nearly 30, I had a beer with a college buddy and he was working for uh, then San Francisco Mayor Willie Brown. And uh, this friend, David Hochschild, who's now a California Energy Commissioner, the chair of the commission, 
uh, he had just put solar on his roof at home. And uh, at the time, you know, solar was really expensive and there wasn't much of it. It was very much a sort of hippie pipe dream. But he put it on his house and was really enthralled by it. And uh, he was like, hey, man, let's, we should try to put this on City Hall. Like, we need to have governments take the lead. And through that beer and the subsequent, you know, napkin uh, diagramming, you know, came up with the idea here of a revenue bond, put solar and energy efficiency on public buildings in San Francisco, and then use the avoided energy costs, the energy payments to pay down the bonds. So you have long-term low interest capital mm. and uh, it all penciled out. And so that turned into first the campaign to get it on the ballot as a ballot initiative to authorize, and then a citywide campaign to uh, to pass this ballot initiative. It was Prop B. This is back in uh, 2001. And, you know, that experience was really galvanizing, transformative for me um, in a couple of different ways. One is like the, this idea of solar as a, an emission-free technology, really just I'd been spending all this time like trying to control smokestacks. How about if we just didn't have any at all? The penny yeah. really dropped for me. Uh, secondly, we had this campaign where you could actually do solar then, again, really expensive, but we could do it cost effectively the way that we'd had this uh, scoped out. And that just gripped the imagination of we had legions of volunteers uh, throughout the city. People were really excited to be a part of something larger than themselves. And uh, that ballot initiative passed by 73% of the vote, which was really high in uh, mm. those days. And then we started getting calls from around the country, like, "Hey, how can uh, how can we do this in in our city as well?" Which was when uh, we decided to quit our jobs and take this grassroots campaign as a uh, as a permanent or as a as a much larger campaign. Um, we had this theory, we had analyses that showed that you know the way to get cheap solar was by buying a lot of it was through economies of scale. You needed a buy a lot of expensive solar. You need to show a long-term market uh, for this technology in order to induce the manufacturers and would-be manufacturers to invest their capital into scaling up factories and the whole supply chain. I want to jump in there and, and, and ask one question. You know, before we before we get into your sort of plans to expand solar, I just wanted to try to get a sense uh, for the audience because solar has changed so fast for so long now the technology the prices the kind of you know this the the kind of social mores around it and how it's viewed so just take us back a little bit to 2002 this is what was the solar landscape then like was anybody even thinking about solar like when you went around and talked about solar were people like what are you even talking about or was it viewed as kind of you know just a hippie affectation how much did it cost like what was the what was the world of solar like in 2002 yeah, so back then, you know, solar was about $9 a watt. Uh, we're, we're closing in on one now, is that right? $1 a watt? I mean, you know, for the actual panels themselves, you know, you're looking at, you know, 25 cents a watt. Oh, wow. Um, you know, utility scale installations are well under a dollar. Um, so, you know, you're, we're essentially nearly an order of magnitude uh, less expensive right now. And, you know, there was 163 megawatts total installed in the U.S. And so, yeah, you know, back in them old days, people knew of solar. I think it was uh, understood as like something that had, you know, some degree of promise, but again, the cost put it out of reach for 
uh, really being taken seriously as a long-term significant portion of our energy resource. So yeah. we're like, were, were people planning for it? Like DOE, when they did their projections and all this kind of stuff, was anybody even, were there projections at the time? Were people saying it was going to grow into something big or were, or was it sort of viewed as kind of like a niche thing for the, for the century? You know what I mean? You know, I would kind of compare it to the algae that you see Exxon always advertising. That <laughs> oh, they yes. Are, uh, really, I've been hearing about that for years, too. You know, that they're really getting. So, you know, it was Arco and Mobile, you know, like had these investments in solar. Shell did it as well. And I don't mean to, you know, there were many, I think, really wonderful and well-meaning people involved in that. And so I don't mean to diminish the seriousness of their efforts. But I guess the point I'm trying to make is that like there were a lot of oil majors that were, you know, investing in it. DOE was putting money into, you know, serious uh, research and development. But it all seemed, you know, very far off. Like it was uh, it was this thing that did not yet exist. And we all hoped that uh, someday it would. And there had been, you know, solar then suffered from, you know, the start, stop, start, stop of market incentives. And, you know, there were particularly like in the California uh, Central Valley, there were installations around, you know, with the large parabolic troughs, Mm. eggs plants that had seemed promising. And and, uh, as soon as everybody scaled up to to respond to the incentives, they were then pulled and... uh, you never, you know, could take advantage of that momentum. So I think, you know, the early history of solar, again, a lot of research and development, not a lot of very smart and long-term market support to actually bring it to actual scale. And I think, you know, early years, that underestimation of solar's potential, you know, really helped in many ways. Like when you scored the federal investment tax credit, no one really thought it would really take off. So it scored really low. And that was really actually <laughs> right. helpful for it uh, to go through. So then you have wildly expensive solar that you can make cost effective in certain limited applications when you have basically like super cheap patient capital and, and entities, <laughs> patient entities uh, willing to wait for it. So how, from the time you started, I mean, I'm sure it was just sort of a, a series of short-term campaigns at first, but at what point did you have a long-term plan? In, in retrospect, was your plan as optimistic as reality turned out to be? Um, I would say no. The plan was not as optimistic as reality <laughs> turned out to be, although it was very specific and accurate as to what would happen. Like there are often times when you you have policy that uh, that promises an outcome and fails to deliver on it. Here was something that absolutely bullseye. Uh, so we had you know analyses of comparable technologies such as you know I mean solar is just basically a semiconductor. Um, you had uh, examples of integrated circuits that were developed, really funded by the military, who was willing to pay an enormous premium uh, in order to have, you know, a technology that was much lighter than uh, what it replaced the uh, capacitors. And through that investment, really brought down the technologies of scale, or, or brought down the cost through uh, economies of scale. So we had, you know, examples of other technologies. We had this report from KPMG. Netherlands that Greenpeace had paid them to do to analyze it said, in essence, that if you brought about a 
global market that could support a factory that would deliver 500 megawatts a year of solar panels, you would be at grid parity. Now, oh wow, you know that was directionally accurate, but uh, you know we're now with you know with factories that are much much larger than that, of course. So I think the cost drop of solar exceeded expectations, though it was definitely bumpy, even though we had you know, predicted this effect by virtue of like what, this, what these policies would do, the, this whole long-term market demand. At the same time, we didn't really anticipate that we would be passing legislation this quickly that um, you know, would require you know, 100% clean energy. So, you know... We had, uh, I'm going to date us here on, uh, for this podcast, but you know, yesterday the Illinois House passed uh, finally a bill that will require 100% clean energy. It's expected to go pass through the Senate on Monday. That makes the 10th state, and this covers you know, well over 35% of the people who live in this country now live in a state where carbon-based electricity is illegal, will be legally mandated to phase out by a date certain. And, you know, that's on the basis of like having this sort of uh, scale availability of cheap zero emission power. Yeah. People don't really appreciate how wildly, I mean, it's just, it's just crazy. These things happen and then you sort of take them on board and they become normal and you look on to the next thing. But it really was not that long ago that the whole idea that any governmental entity of any size would target 100% clean energy was just absolutely out of the universe people were talking about like solar will catch up around 2070 like i remember those kind of projections not really that long ago when i was just kind of early in my career there were still you know coal was still expected to dominate out well well past 2050 it's just the scale of the change is is really hard to cram in your head but you know now the energy want community has developed a pretty good sense of how you scale up a technology and make it cheaper I feel like there's a little bit more of a formalized understanding of that, but a lot of that is based on the story of solar. <laughs> it's because solar is sort of like the model, you know, kind of the model now of how you go about doing it. But of course, back in 2002, you didn't know that. <laughs> you didn't know any of that stuff. So I'm just curious when you were thinking about advocacy, what kind of policies to advocate for? Sort of what was your plan? What was your what was your instinct about what kind of policies would be both politically, you know, possible and efficacious at at scaling this up? That's a great question, Dave. And so, you know, in the beginning we first launched, we're like, okay, we'll do a bunch more of these city-led initiatives and we'll put mm. the power of energy democracy to drive, you know, choice in uh, in energy supply. And solar was this perfect technology because it circumvented the decision makers. It uh, you could put it on your own roof. You didn't have to wait for the utility to make the right decision. You could take that power uh, and and do it yourself. So we initially said, hey, we're going to do a bunch more of these city-led efforts. We got our grant from the Energy Foundation, fifty thousand dollars, our first grant, and we started looking at some of these other cities. And it was like, oh, wait a minute. Like actually, there is a huge bit of policy, state-level policy infrastructure that enables people to be able to install solar upon their own roof and generate their own energy. And those were, you know, the preconditions for being able to do a city-led initiative. So that caused us to reevaluate our strategy and uh, really focus at the state-level sort of policy infrastructure. And when you're looking at a solar market, 
you're only as strong as your weakest link and it's not it's never the one thing it is the four or five things that you all have to link together so uh, i think one of the key insights that we had early on was like the solution was really at the state level that was where most energy decisions are made and you're much closer to democracy there i don't know how mm. to pass anything in through the federal government i don't know that anybody does it all anyway. And it Hasn't gotten any easier <laughs> since then. Has not gotten any easier. But at the state level, um, you know, you uh, are on the legislative side, you're much closer to being able to actually influence the outcome of uh, legislative battles. And then on, you know, the other large piece of this, of course, is regulatory through the public utilities commissions. And so our first effort was in California. It was the California Solar Initiative. And this was something that uh, a wonderful advocate, Bernadette Del Chiaro, who headed Environment California then, had been working through the legislature for many years, and it kept not being able to pass. We then, in collaboration with others, worked uh, really hard to get it through the Public Utilities Commission. And so you had um, then Governor Schwarzenegger, um, who really stood out as a, as a strong leader for this, establish a goal for a hundred million, uh, for a million solar roofs. And it was really a, an ability to get it through the Public Utilities Commission to implement that. That ended up being a about a $3 billion effort to incentivize rooftop solar with a really elegant market design through these declining incentives that got you down to uh, grid parity when you wouldn't need any incentives at all afterwards. And uh, when, did, when did that pass? What, what year was that? So, you know, that was, oh my goodness, um, I'm math challenged on a Friday, but uh, it was essentially around 2004, 2005 um, mm. that we finally got those through. Uh, and that that was then also passed through the, the legislature afterwards and confirmed, which was really quite helpful. But that was a really big sort of eye opener for policymakers and for energy nerds everywhere. Like you, that was you know that was a large chunk of money designed to last over ten years. That was this signal to the manufacturers of the world, to the installers of the state, that like this industry, this market is going to be around. Um, there is a commitment to it time to scale up, go big. And, mm. uh, and then once, you know, you had, you know, the fifth largest economy in the world uh, commit to it, it, it no longer seems so esoteric. Now, this was when both Japan and Germany then also were really strong leaders as well. So it was a definitely a global effort, but uh, we really, California really helped catalyze that uh, in the early 2000s with this type of campaign. So then after California, which... I suppose you would say in terms of progressive policy is kind of a, <laughs> the low-hanging fruit. Did you continue on in California trying to expand in California or did you move on to other states or what was it? What was the plan of attack? Yeah, a little bit of both. And so, you know, there's a story of like how you actually uh, run and grow a uh, nonprofit advocacy organization. And so you are, you know, fundraising uh, philanthropy is the lifeblood of your efforts and you have to be able to actually fundraise in order to feed your ambitions on this. So for many years, we were two people, we were three people, we were four people, we were really very small. It wasn't until 2008 that we were able to open an East Coast office. But uh, yes, so I would say over the course of Boat Solar's history, we kind of had a 70-30 
uh, split where you know the majority of our efforts were in places where we thought we could get traction that there was a political appetite um, that we could have a real line of sight to see success and then we spent you know a non-trivial part of our time in lonely places where there wasn't much going on but if we didn't help catalyze if we didn't sort of plant the early seeds it, it wasn't going to happen somebody needed to do it we always wanted to be an organization where we weren't just me too. We wanted to be involved in fights that weren't going to be won unless, you know, but for our involvement. And uh, that was why we also put uh, so much investment in places that it took a long time to, uh, a long fuse to actually pay off. So immediately after California, Arizona, New Mexico, um, and uh, some of these sunnier Western states then really invested in a lot of the East Coast policy as well. Uh, we opened an office in New York, I think in 2008. Then gradually a couple of the Midwestern and Southeastern states, it was the Turner Foundation that brought us into Florida and Georgia, um, where there wasn't much going on at the time, but uh, we sent one of our best and smartest advocates down to scope out a plan for how we could help catalyze something in Georgia. And uh, it was, you know, that campaign was completely different from what we did and what we looked like in California. But uh, in collaboration with some awesome local advocates, we were able to help uh, move the needle there as well. So, you know, we are now 40 people working in about 26 states across the country, which uh, over 20 years, that's been a, a lot of growth for a very different organization than we started. But yeah, I want to I want to talk a little bit uh, later about some of those organizational issues. But just to focus in on these on these early years, was this all state like w- was it all policy? Were you 100 percent about advocating for policies or was there any sort of like comms campaigns or? God forbid, awareness campaigns, or were were you a strictly kind of policy advocacy shop? Yeah. So, you know, as I, you know, I think you've written beautifully about change doesn't happen just because you're right. There is a huge... <laughs> it's very frustrating, Adam. It's very frustrating, <laughs> right? Um, I think life would be a lot different were it so. You know, you, like, there's a huge power building component to this. And so, I, I can't overemphasize how much collaboration and partnership um, with local place-based, community-based organizations in everywhere we've worked has been absolutely crucial to success. And so, you know, Vote Solar as an organization brings, you know, a pretty deep sophistication around solar policy and then brings some campaigning expertise as well. And so our model has typically been this sort of inside-outside game where if you're doing legislation, you know, passing bills, you know, you really need to power map, uh, you know, who, who can actually get something done, what kind of campaigns are they going to be receptive to, building all the information necessary in order to get it passed. And then, of course, following the lead of the local organizations that really have the relationships, that have the local voice, that have the power as to how that actually happens. Similarly, for the regulatory campaigns, you know, you these are legalistic processes in public utilities commissions. You have to have a lawyer intervene, have standing, create a docket full of like math, full mm-hmm. of like actual demonstration of facts. 
And then again, you never win just because you're right. You also, at the same time, have to build an outside game, a, a parade that uh, these policymakers can jump in front of and, and uh, be responsive to. You need to make sure that policymakers know what the public wants and that they feel accountable, accountable to answer to them. And that takes uh, a lot of communications work, a lot of grassroots organizing work, a lot of partnership with uh, community-based organizations. And you know, increasingly for us, uh, this has really been also about environmental justice communities where you know, I would say over the past five years, everything that we have done has been putting equity groups, putting environmental justice campaigners uh, listening to them, establishing partnerships with them, and following their lead on these campaigns. Well, let me ask a, about the campaigns. I mean, you touched on some of this, but you've, you know, over 20 years run a lot of campaigns <laughs> at this point in a lot of different kinds of places, uh, presumably a lot of different kinds of campaigns with different sorts of people you're targeting. So if you had to generalize, what is it that makes a campaign successful? Like what are the markers that distinguish your successful campaigns from the unsuccessful ones? What needs to be in place? Well, winning for one, um, <laughs> but uh, that's a little too flip. Uh, you know, I actually love campaigning and uh, the parts of it I like uh, are finding creative ways to get people engaged. Um, I think that so much of environmentalism has been about no and mm. not about but but what do we say yes to and so i think an organizing ethos of vote solar was really centered around you know this is something that people want and in fact we poll around the country and this has been consistent over the past 20 years with some fluctuation in the numbers but directionally super majorities of people in this country on both sides of the aisle want to see this transition yeah i was going to ask about that actually because this is something that is utterly remarkable about solar and especially in you know 2021 almost unique yeah <laughs> in everything like it has it pulls through the roof it always has as far as i've been aware of it. i mean I, I i guess you're saying it pulled that way from the very beginning so were you ever surprised or by just how resilient and broad that support is, it really seems to kind of defy political gravity in a way almost no other issue I can think of does. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is remarkable. And we always tried to lean into uh, that by letting people bring their own reasons for why they should go solar to the campaign and not defining it for them. And in places with sort of different political outlooks, different hues, uh, you know, the, the words that we use were different. Some places this is about freedom, some places it's about, you know, jobs, other places it's about climate. And uh, you need to be very thoughtful as to how you talk about the rationale behind. But we generally tried to leave a space where people could bring their own rationale. Hey, they like solar, we're not going to tell them why they like solar, let them bring that uh, to the campaign itself. Um, but, you know, further reflect on your initial question just around like what distinguishes a good campaign. I think a good campaign really engages people. And I think that actually a positive messaging, giving people that positive alternative, what we want to do, a bright outlook, 
um, people want to be a part of something larger than themselves. I think that is really actually a core insight into the human psyche. Uh, I, I, but, you know, I've heard, a, I've a heard lot a lot of places. Of, yeah, go ahead. I, I've heard a lot of people around campaigning and around the non, uh, kind of the activist world say some version of it's just easier to make people angry <laughs> than it is to get them sort of in support of something. It's easier to get people to fight something. It's easier when you have bad guys. It's easier when you have a clear thing you're trying to say no to. Like there's a reason things gravitate toward no <laughs> in the activist world. Do you just think that's wrong or have you, I mean, is, is solar just have some sort of magic fairy dust that that switches that over you know what you describe you know certainly powers most of my you know political giving and uh <laughs> you know my presidential election campaigning on my personal <laughs> side so i definitely um i feel you i i get that uh i'm not Im- immune to that and you know we we definitely articulate like why aren't we seeing more solar? Who's blocking it? And you right. can definitely create the very accurate uh, picture of like why we're not seeing more, and you can campaign against that. That said, you know, I again, I've always gravitated towards campaigns where, uh, and I think you know, we've done things like had billboards outside of the Capitol that uh, had the tagline, you know, this is right after the. Gulf oil spill. Um, we said, you know, when there's a huge spill of solar energy, it's just called a nice day. And, and then it was like, you know, yes on uh, Bill X, and that, you know, that got in the paper, like, uh, and as you know, sort of, sort of ripple effects associated after that. We, you know, had airplanes pulling sky banners uh, that said, you know. This was the prescription for oil addiction at the same time that we had large rallies with uh, people dressed up in uh, in doctor outfits, which was, <laughs> I guess you kind of had to be there, but it was funny at the time. <laughs> um, uh, you know, we tried to work in Texas. Texas is a very hard place to work, but uh, we... We did an analysis that showed, you know, we were sponsoring a bill of like, um, and showed how many jobs there would be. If, it's if, very sunny if, there in Texas. If this bill passed and, uh, and we ran ads in like the Midland newspaper saying like, wanted, help wanted, you know, 10,000 workers for the solar economy, call legislature and, uh, and tell them to pass X, um, and, you know, again, that then turned into a press piece on like witty campaigns that mm-hmm. had a much larger impact than the $230 for that help wanted ad in the Midland <laughs> Tribune. So those were parts of the campaigns that I really enjoyed. And, you know, the thing about like nonprofit campaigning is you are always going to be outspent. You are mm-hmm. always going to be out lobbyist. Um, but, uh, you know, you really need to figure out like how you actually bring people power to it. And, uh, and that I think is uh, the part that I have enjoyed the most is like solar in so many ways is democracy and, in, in, in energy and environmental decision-making and really tried to make that true. Speaking of solar's enduring popularity, I at least have been sort of gritting my teeth, just waiting for polarization to swallow this too, as it has swallowed literally everything else in our public life, right down to 
professional sports and the TV shows we watch, the the beans we eat, the brand of beans we eat. Solving the plague, for example. Yeah. Yes, yes. Whether you're pro or anti-plague. But as far as I can tell, it's mostly held up. I'm wondering if you've seen any movement in that direction. Like, are you seeing it start to polarize? Are you seeing it associated more now with, you know, dim socialism, whatever, whatever? Or is it still defying political gravity? I don't think solar is immune, per se, to being attacked uh, and to politicization. Um you know, look at Solyndra, which was, you know, an absolutely manufactured scare quotes scandal uh, of a entirely successful program that made money for the American people. And, you know, like that, that wasn't organic. That was actually, uh, as many things in our politicized culture, you know, really advocacy driven, very cynically so. But I have not yet seen this. I mean, right before the 2016 election, like in that September, there was a Pew uh, poll that showed that 87% of would-be Trump voters supported solar and 92% of would-be Clinton voters supported solar. And, you know, despite the obvious uh, division between the two. So I, I, uh, I do not think that, I do think that solar needs to continue to earn and hold its uh, social capital and it abandons that at its own peril. I do think a, a part of the pathway forward is really trying to recapture manufacturing for really just that reason. Like we cannot mm. offshore our supply chain if we expect solar to supply nearly half the power of this country going forward, which is why I think you know passing the Ossoff bill is absolutely critical. Uh, it's really our last hope for actually reshoring uh, the the manufacturing. That's a great segue then to my next question. So the solar campaigns, you know, focused really heavily on state level policies, on net metering to encourage rooftop solar, on RPSs, renewable portfolio standards to ramp up the percentage of solar. Those have been wildly successful. <laughs> As you say, most states now, I think, are, or, or at least something close to half the population lives in a state now with these requirements. You sort of have the, the kind of policy pull for solar in place. So what's next for solar advocates? Like what, what is the, you know, not just specifically, but sort of broadly, like what's the next frontier for solar advocacy? Is it, is it a turn to sort of manufacturing and materials and other stuff like that? Or, or where do you see it going? Yeah. I mean, I think there are really three main things and I could, you know, keep adding on, I could go to 10, but like, let's just stick with these three right now. Um, one is, you know, the original premise behind my motivation or my thinking around vote solar is once you made it cheap, it would just continue to uh, under the gravitational pull of the economics. And, right. you know, solar PPAs right now are in sunny spots are like two cents per kilowatt it's lud hour. It's they're ludicrous. Just, they're just crazy. It's awesome. Um, and you still see places, you know, where they are trying to build ginormous new fossil fuel. Uh, so, you know, Duke Energy, for example, you know, largest utility in this country, knows very well how cheap solar is. Um, you know, it has made these public commitments to uh, net zero by 2050. Uh, all, you know, their press announcements are wonderful. Their plans that they file with regulators tell a very different story. They're trying to build massive amounts of new 
new gas plants. And it is still necessary for advocacy to have a seat at the table and drive deployment. You know, we mm. just saw uh, the DOE come out with, you know, their solar roadmap for, you know, 40% by 2035. Um, mm-hmm. That will require, according to their numbers, you know, 30 gigawatts a year of solar deployment through 2025, and then 60 gigawatts a year through the, the next decade after that. Just a reference for, for readers, just a base set for readers, We it's about 15 gigs a year now. So we have to double that for the next five years and then double that for the next 15 years yeah. to get to that target. It's it's pretty big. And it's all totally doable, but it won't just happen. Like uh, It won't just happen because it's cheaper and cleaner. <laughs> there are still entrenched interests that want to continue to profit from the fossil fuel infrastructure and legacy that we Can you have. touch on those? Because like when I'm discussing these kind of things to sort of, you know, just sort of people outside, their instinct, when you say it's cleaner and cheaper, their natural first question is, well, then why are they already doing it? Why isn't everybody already doing it? So, you, you know, and, and if in a market, you know, it's capitalism, <laughs> economics ought to be dictating things, you know, it, at least that's people's sort of intuitive sense of it. So what are those forces now causing utilities or states to still push for fossil fuels, even if it is true that they could get cheaper renewable energy? So, you know, I think there are two things here. One is in much of this country, we have, you know, vertically integrated utilities. Um, that is to say that you have a, a monopoly, you, they own the wires and they own the generation. And they, in essence, get paid based upon how much capital they deploy. Um, now, there are regulators that are there to approve their uh, investments as prudent and in the customer's best interests, but there is a real capital bias um, towards getting a return on equity for how much money they actually spend. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that's a big part of it. The other part of it, you know, really also leans into ease laziness even Mm. um and this is around you know when we go into an integrated resource plan so this is when a utility says we want to build x and if it's gas or you know uh we'll say well renewables are cheaper and they you know at first they say they want to do it for economic concerns and then when we show them renewals are cheaper and they next say well we need it to keep the lights on we need it for reliability and so you know if uh so that's the real the moat we have to cross here is cost, but then that's the real castle keep here is the, uh, <laughs> is this reliability. Because for policymakers, this is a career-ending thing to get wrong. Like um, right. it's a really big trump card they play, and so this is actually you know we said I was we're going to lay out the three things that we need to work on. Um, we can run a system nationally with majority renewables in terms of a uh, variable generation, we need to make some changes to make that actually work. And uh, we need to introduce a lot more flexibility into the system. And so partly that's batteries, partly that is a real focus on demand flexibility, help Mm. essentially paying people to change when they charge or give them incentives to, uh, to be good grid citizens. We can talk more about that if you like. And it is also some degree, some uh, some transmission that 
you know, helps expand balancing areas, interconnects the load centers uh, with the with the with the best generating profiles. So, so you know, the reasons why we don't actually just see this happen just because it's cheaper and cleaner and better for everybody have really to do with uh, mostly with economics um, in terms of perverse incentives inside of utilities. And it is a lot easier to have a, you know, a gas plant, you just flip a switch on rather than transforming the system to be more flexible and resilient. Yeah. Okay. So you said three areas for solar advocacy these days. Yeah. And the last is really, you know, I should have even led with it as the number one, which is just inclusivity. As we make this transition from fossils to renewables, we have to absolutely have to make sure that it benefits and includes everybody. And we cannot continue to replicate uh, some of the inequities of our fossil fuel system. And so I was just to say, you know, over the past five plus years at Boat Solar, we've completely changed how we go about planning our campaigns, how we go about the policies that we work on, and it has really benefited everybody by making this transformation. And so when we look at some of these largest, you know, most comprehensive climate bills, none of these would have happened if it weren't for the leadership of the environmental justice community. So this goes from, you know, California's SB 100 uh, to the New York Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act and to uh, you know, the of this week, the Climate and Equitable Jobs Act in Illinois, uh, across the board, you know, beginning with a uh, developing partnerships with the communities that we wish to serve, co-creating the policies to make sure that they include benefits for everybody that everybody can participate in, really just builds these much stronger, much more powerful coalitions that can get really big things done. And so I firmly believe that this is the path that we need to double down on as we continue to uh, to move forward in getting that further deployment of solar. So broadly speaking, the more beneficiaries, the more power building you have in order to actually uh, make big changes happen. So that's solar. I mean, solar is everybody's favorite success story. <laughs> it's it's one of the few things that give me any hope at all. It seems like the tech and the economics and the advocacy all kind of worked together really well for solar in such a way as to really turbocharge it. And it's just been amazing these last 20 years. But of course, you know, like solar is not the only thing we need <laughs> for climate mitigation. There's a whole wide world of climate things we need. So I'm just curious how much of solar's success is something unique to solar, you know, this sort of this kind of adaptability to different values, this sort of like wholesomeness, this, this image of wholesomeness that is seemingly undentable. You know, how much of that is unique to solar and how much of what has made solar advocacy work can be transferred to other pieces of the puzzle that we need for for clean energy, like home power management and storage. And there's all these other pieces of the puzzle now that could use some of Solar's mojo. Is Solar's mojo transferable? Yes. 
And that's a two-part question. So one is, you know, what has been one of the things that's been awesome about solar is just these monumental cost declines from something that was, you know, 10x more expensive than an alternative to something that is quite a bit cheaper than mm. the fossil alternative. And so can you see similar cost declines in other climate necessary technologies? And I would argue absolutely. I would also argue that longtime readers of uh, Dave Roberts will know that uh, the path forward for success is electrify everything and run it all on <laughs> renewables. And so having this like cheap renewable energy is the sort of a, a foundation for our right. hopes in other sectors as well. But if you're looking at, say, you know, mobility, batteries have come down 87% in the mm -hmm. last decade, and they are far from done yet, um, both with the battery technologies that uh, are currently extant and uh, the new ones that are all being worked upon. You know, I think you could make a similar argument for, you know, the electrification of, of, uh, of buildings for heat pumps, which are uh, really nascent where, you know, you can't get a contractor that... Make uh, heat pumps as sexy as solar, Adam. That's your next... Uh... That's your next goal. So, you know, sexy is one thing, but, uh, you know, the, the first question is like, can the technology get cheaper through, through scale? Absolutely. Both the, the hardware as well as all the soft costs associated with like the workforce, knowing what the heck it is, and then being able to efficiently install it with all the, you know, removing all the bugs in the permitting and et cetera, et cetera. So there's a ton of work that can be done to reduce those costs. The other part of this, Dave, like, I think the key to sexiness is like, does it make your life better? And, right. you know, tell me, what's what's Tesla's advertising budget? <laughs> right. Uh, zero. They shoot a car into space and then they go on Twitter and that's <laughs> it. You know, it has zero advertising budget because, like, it is absolutely compelling, you know all the reservation lines for the Rivian trucks, like, um, mm. you know, you know, the F one fifty when like they went out electric and you could actually charge your house with it. Um, like their reservation lines were absolutely huge. Um, I mean, I remember I actually went to the launch of the Tesla model three and nobody had ever seen a picture of it. Um, mm. no one knew how many wheels it had. <laughs> and you know and elon got like some like over a billion dollars worth of like free money in terms of a thousand dollar down payments on reservations before anyone had actually even seen a picture of it so yes i i think that there's uh uh at least in the vehicles it's definitely sexy when it comes to like home automation so i'm a customer of ohm connect which is this company that's trying to help reduce grid costs when the grid needs it most just by, you know, first it was just by changing behavior, you know, asking people, sending them a text and asking them to turn off lights. But now all my major loads are on Wi-Fi enabled plugs. And when the grid needs it, it automatically turns off my freezer, turns off my fridge. You know, now when my kindergartner daughter opens the fridge door and the lights don't go on she's like hey daddy it's an ohm hour um, <laughs> it's funny and we all know that that means like every time that happens for every uh, 50 minute increment we're making a quarter every time you know they touch our nest uh we're making 75 cents so you can expect to make somewhere around 300 400 a year just by turning off these uh 
actually not, you don't lift a finger, you know, it's just all automated. So, um, so is getting paid to do nothing sexy for some people (laughs) it is for some people it actually is. Yeah. That's my dream. (laughs) Have you changed your mind at all about the state focus? I mean, if anything, it seems even more apt now (laughs) than it was when you settled on it. Is that still your primary hope for climate progress? I mean, we do have a generational opportunity right now um, to get something done with this Congress, uh, especially if we were to get rid of the filibuster, as you have uh, as longtime <sighs> listeners, as longtime <laughs> readers of your, uh, your insight well know. I do think that there is a way to get to what would effectively be a renew, an iteration of what has worked so well in the states, uh, the, a federal standard for clean energy requirements mm-hmm. that uh, you could make that happen. Clearly, the whole entire Biden administration is just, I mean, it is, he's, they've absolutely surprised me with their ambition. And it is just rife with superstar leaders throughout that mm-hmm. uh, entire administration. I, I'm a committed West Coaster, but I definitely have some FOMO, like working with those people would be awesome. Uh, <laughs> and so this is the, the, the best possible scenario that we're going to see on the federal level that we could possibly imagine for quite some time. And um, I don't know. I mean, we've had a longstanding sort of rule of thumb that uh, if your plan involves the federal government or if your plan involves Congress, you're going to need another plan. Um, and that has <laughs> always uh, stood us in, in, in good stead. But, you know, with Jigger Shaw over at the loan program office, they're doing some really cool and innovative financing that I think will actually create some durable models that will exist uh, beyond his tenure there. Um, I, you know, the federal government has uh, a lot of money and a lot of power and can do a lot of good. Getting stuff through Congress is just another matter entirely. So let's hope we can get something through, but then double down on the states. We're going to continue to have to have state level advocacy going forward. And we have proven time and time again that you can make really big things happen that will then have additional impacts elsewhere by bringing down costs, by bringing the jobs uh, that will, again, impact places where you're not doing it directly by advocacy. With solar, solar's cheap. There are places in Indiana right now, utilities that are going ahead and doing their own math and uh, really digging deep on solar, and you just love to see it. We're getting uh, close to time, so I wanted to ask a couple of questions, not strictly about solar, but just about you know your, your experience founding an organization and then running it for 20 years as it grows from two people to 40. You know, I've talked to lots of people about that transition just in terms of organizational dynamics and running an organization, navigating that shift from sort of we're a tiny band of people who all know each other and are good friends to something like, you know, a bureaucracy that has levels (laughs) and managers and things like that, you know, an actual organization is just a very difficult transition, no matter what you're doing, but especially in the nonprofit world, (laughs) which is difficult to survive in the best of circumstances. So I'm just curious, like, what do you feel like you've learned about how to build an organization? Like, what have you taken away just uh, in, in terms of just managerial wisdom? 
You know, that is a great question, and we could do a, another hour podcast on just that. And I don't think that this is something unique just to the nonprofit side. You know, there is a, a literature replete about just founders across the board that are good at starting mm. things and uh, less good at real scale. And so for me, it's definitely, I didn't have many models of like what what a good boss looked like, what successful management structures looked like. Um and that was exactly it. You know, we began as just like a couple of passion-driven, driven, like-minded people um, and then grew. And, you know, there were probably three, maybe four, like big step changes of complexity where what worked before broke. Hmm. And I either had to learn something new or I had to get out. And, you know, I... <laughs> tried to take that seriously, like, uh, to continuously ask myself, like, am I the best person to run this organization right now? Um, you know, I had to grow a lot. I had to learn a lot of new skills. I had to learn, you know, a theory and practice of management that I was not actually born with. And, you know, it has been far from a, a, uh, a smooth road, but it's been a lovely road full of like a lot of those <laughs> learnings that we've, we've all grown from. But, you know, you got to fundraise all the time and you have to show success in order to be a successful fundraiser all the time is part of like what it means to run a nonprofit. I, you know, some of the historical regrets that I've had was, you know, frankly, being so far attuned to wanting to looking at all the external opportunities and wanting to have impact and knowing that I could make change if I hired uh, another person, you know, campaigner here or a regulatory person there. And, I wish throughout I had invested a lot more on infrastructure, um, on the human resources side, on mm. the, um, uh, you know, even just, you know, everybody ended up because we had that so many lovely, idealistic, mission driven people that were constantly overextended and overachieving under budget. And uh, there's just a lot more foundational work to a larger organization that I wished I'd invested in earlier. And, you know, as I step down from Vote Solar, and I just want to really put in this plug here, like this is, we look back over this, this history of success and achievement, and like, this is not my success and achievement. This, they are, there is like such a legacy of awesome alumni and current team members that have like made all of this happen. And so the extent that uh, was able to do this was really my ability to provide the resources and then to get out of the way of uh, wonderful people doing wonderful things. And I trust your people, resource them, give them the resources they need, uh, figure out what the what is blocking them, what their problems are, and then focus your effort on on uh, on fixing those. And that would be one of my best lessons learned. It's interesting. A, a lot of parallels there to listening to my old boss, Ezra Klein, talk about building Vox. You know, similarly things, you start out with a small collection of passion-driven sort of superstars and then slowly have to make it into a, a functioning organization. <laughs> His takeaway seems to be, my God, that was exhausting. I'm never doing that again. I'm just going back to writing, <laughs> having succeeded. Would you ever, did you feel like you liked that part of it enough that you want to get back into that part? Or are you looking to do something else, I guess, sort of by way of concluding, let's just talk about sort of like, what is it from all this experience that you would like to jump back into and do again? Or what is it that you are looking to do differently now that you've, now that this 20 year chapter is, is over? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, for me, 
the time was really right right now for me to step aside for a couple of reasons. One is like, I do want some new adventures, some new experiences and, um, 20 years of like, it has been, I am so grateful for this experience. It has been a labor of love every step of the way. Yet, I also have a feeling that I, I want to take on some new challenges. The flip side of this is like, it really is time for some new perspectives, some new voices, someone with like radically different life experiences that looks at the world in a different way to have a chance at running what I think is an incredibly impactful organization. And I am really encouraged by like that type of change. I think it's actually really healthy. And as I've shared my decision internally, like it has been like a jolt of adrenaline running through the entire org as like we have just seen everybody really step up, step in and step forward with uh, their individual ways of leadership. And it's just, it is lovely to see. So I think this is going to be really healthy for this organization that I will continue to support and for the rest of my life. And I encourage everybody else to do so because it is, it is a necessary organization going forward. I'm just not necessary to it. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's what I came to the conclusion. So for me, like I, I'd like a little rest for a bit. Uh, (laughs) This fall isn't in the end turning out to be like I thought it would be. Um, Uh. Travel, you know, isn't really in the the cards for me right now. But you know, that's that's okay. I also find it. um, I am invigorated by the challenges of climate. I am. I'm going to stay in the climate space. I uh, I am definitely mission driven on this front. I, you know, look at what we did collectively around solar, um, and this was, you know, here was something that needed to exist but didn't yet, and, you know, with the global campaign, we made that happen. Um, there are a lot of other similar blank spaces in the, uh, in the climate sphere, things that we know need to exist but don't yet, and that's where I'd like to focus my efforts. Uh, I am, I, I feel like I'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur at heart. I am kicking around... Um, some private sector uh, ideas that uh, I am going to look to pursue. Uh, so I would like to, my entire life has been on the, the public service side, and I think I would like to try the, the private side. But at my, you know, at my heart of hearts, like I'm a campaigner, I'm an advocate. I love the rush of, uh, of going out against all odds um, with a plucky band of joyful solo warriors and winning. Let's conclude by then sharing with readers what you think the our listeners, sorry, I can't get out of the writing mindset, <laughs> with listeners, what you think those blank spaces are. Like if listeners are looking to get into this, you know, the same way, the same way you did 20 years ago, where are those blank spaces where they could make a real impact? You know, there's a lot of people that'll have their own list of this, depending on, you know, how far you pull back the lens. Um, sure. So... You know, all right, on one level, I, um, so I'm also on the board of this awesome organization called Power for All, which is in many ways the sort of the vote solar, but for the billion people on this planet that don't have any access to electricity at all. Um, And I think that there is the ability and the potential to bring decentralized renewables to uniquely provide electricity and uh, electrified services uh, in many different business models. It's just an incredibly dynamic space. And that is really a passion project of mine. When I look, you know, closer to home here, the challenge of really introducing flexibility into uh, the grid, whether it be through storage or really through demand response, like it does feel really nascent compared to 
the where it, it needs to be. And I think that that uh, if, if you read the RMI reports on clean energy portfolios, I'm absolutely convinced that really that demand response is a gas killer, and uh, we need to have it. The policy models for it just feel like solar 2007 like there's like competing different business models like we do not have actual good transactional space for the value that it can bring and that's a policy problem that needs to be solved Um, and the opportunity for huge scale is there but there's a lot of roadblocks in the way i look at electrification and i don't know i don't really want to not as you know, electrification of transportation. I'm not a supercar guy, but I do think that this <laughs> premise of like interconnecting tons of really large batteries onto the grid provides an opportunity for solving so many other problems through both uh, managed charging as well as potentially in the future uh, vehicle to grid charging um, and a couple of other things besides that. Um, that is a, an enormous opportunity for bringing down bringing in efficiencies and bringing down costs for participants and non-participants alike that uh, I think needs a lot further exploration. I could go on and on, um, but those are you know some of the, uh, the, the top ones that uh, are top of mind for me right now. Great. Well, thanks for that perspective. That's really interesting. It'll be maybe uh, in 20 years, there'll be another, another Adam at the end of another 20-year career, and we'll find that demand response is <laughs> sexy and ubiquitous. You know, uh, here's hoping, Dave, here is hoping. So, yeah. All right. Thanks so much, uh, Adam, for taking the time and thanks uh, for your 20 years of work. You know, uh, both this hour and the past 20 years have definitely been my pleasure. And David, thank you for being such an incisive and insightful reporter in this space. Uh, no one does it better than you. You uh, really, I've, I've enjoyed reading your stuff uh, for the last 20 years as well. Well, I'll get you that check later. Thank you for that. Um, you got it. <laughs> all right. Thanks, uh, thanks a lot, Adam. Goodbye. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Volts Podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.